This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Brunwyn Milkins. Hey, mental workers, welcome back. Ever wondered what it's like in your first few years post-registration? Well, today we've got a great insight for you from our guest, Their name is Jordan Turner, and they are an educational developmental registrar who works in group private practice, primarily with neurodivergent people. Hey, Jordan. Hi, Bronwyn. How are you? Yeah, well, thanks. How are you going? I'm doing great. It's so good to have you on. Listeners, today we are going to be touching on a few things that Jordan wants to share with us about their first few years being registered. We're going to talk about what it's like being pregnant when you're fully registered and what that is like with clients who might have some additional questions and be pushing those boundaries a little bit. We're also going to talk about how Jordan builds rapport and how she focused on that a lot in her first year. We're going to be touching on setting boundaries, both with clients and with yourself and any other bits and pieces that come up, I imagine. Right, Jordan? Yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll see what happens. (laughs) We will see what happens and we will dive in. So Jordan, I want to bring us into the action straight away and Please take me and listeners to the time when you were pregnant and seeing clients. What was that like? What was happening? Um, It was really interesting, I think, because uh, I work a lot with um, neurodivergent clients and and they're pretty forthright, uh, most of them, about um, things that they've noticed. So for obviously the first couple of months, I was um, not showing, but I was experiencing things like, um, you know, morning sickness and all that. Um, and then eventually, thankfully it was at winter, um, so I could wear a jumper, but eventually I started showing. So I had to start telling my clients and, um, yeah, of course, um, one of the things that's really interesting about being pregnant is that everyone starts having your, your personal life is made kind of public. And that's, that's something that's really daunting for a psychologist. I think in general, some people prefer to be like a tabula rasa, like a blank slate. And so that they can just have that you know, professional relationship, but you find that when you're pregnant, so many people are start like wanting to know more about you and, and, you know, the implications that you're having sexual relations with someone and all that sort of thing can come up in, in session. It can be very interesting to navigate. Yeah. So what were some of the things that clients would say to you about pregnancy? Was it pretty tame or were there some, uh, hairy questions? Yeah. Some, some were, uh, Almost everyone wanted to know what the name of the baby was. Ah. Um, and then they gave me some ideas of what to name the baby. <laughs> um, I think one was really weird, like Frankenstein. And I was like, I don't, I don't know if that's going to work for us. <laughs> and I had a few ask me if I was like wearing like those bands that hold your tummy in because their mom had worn a band when they were pregnant. And so that was really interesting. And they kind of reached for me to try and see. This is a, a kid, by the way, yeah. not an adult. <laughs> Important detail. Yes. Yes. I think it would have been a little bit stranger if it was an adult. Yeah, but, me too. Um, yeah. Taking taking it as um, par for the course yeah. with um, curious kids, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I, a lot of them uh, kind of just wanted to know about the dad, my partner, um, and, you know, general questions. They wanted to know if I was going to take time off. That was a big one. A lot of them had a really hard time with the fact that I would be leaving because I had established 
a really great working relationship with them. Um, I think I'm a bit, I don't know if I'm different, but I'm, I kind of take the position of being quite transparent with my clients. So, you know, I said, I'm, you know, I'm having a, a baby. I'm going to go away. I'm planning on coming back and seeing you again. And I would try and answer most of the questions if I felt like they weren't like too intrusive. Like if they start talking about, I don't know, whether I was going to do a C-section or a vaginal birth, maybe I wouldn't answer that kind of question. But but yeah, it and, you know, because I work mostly with kids, also the the parents had a lot of um, questions as well. And they were, because it was my first child, they were kind of like, it was interesting that where I was giving them advice about how to work with their kids, their neurodivergent kids, they were then in, in that role of I, I'm a first time parent. And now, um, you know, they're, they kind of have more knowledge in that space, I suppose, of what it's like to be a parent for the first time and dealing with babies and navigating that, which is really interesting. Mm, it's so interesting for this to happen early in your career as well, because there are so many difficult aspects of this, like knowing how much to disclose. And then it's a visible thing that you cannot hide when you start showing. And yeah. so being having parents try and be in that expert position as well. And yeah, it's just so difficult and daunting. Did you, how did you navigate this? Like, did you have to sit back and reflect and decide this all of yourself or were there resources that you had? Um, I've kind of, I had a lot of supervision around it because I, um, I'm pretty lucky. My practice is very family friendly. So a lot of, I think most of the, the, um, other practitioners there were moms or women who were thinking of having babies. Um, and so they had had that experience as well. So it was a bit like, um, they were sharing their experiences and I'm really curious in that way. I wanted to know how they navigated it, what they did. How did you decide that something was too personal to answer? Did you self-reflect or was that something that you decided in supervision? I was pretty sure, like, I'm pretty mindful of like how I might feel in my body. If somebody asks me uh, an intrusive question, I think if it's kind of general information, uh, I I can understand clients' natural desire to want to know more about the person that they're disclosing so much to. And because it's very obvious that I was, you know, I was having, I have a life outside of being a psychologist, I was pretty happy to open up to them. Sometimes that builds rapport in a way, like without kind of going into, oh, you know, I had a horrible time and, you know, oh, morning sickness is kicking my ass today or whatever. I would be um, politely kind of say, oh, yeah, I'm doing fine. Uh, answer one or two questions, maybe before or after the session, but never in session. Um, there had been some clients that got really, really invested in the child ah. um, and wanting to know more and kind of wanting to be involved. And that was one of those situations where I really need to be firm with my boundaries and the the limits to our professional relationship. You know, you can't come babysit my baby, unfortunately. You know, you have to, you know, our relationship is within this room and not really outside of the practice. And so that was that was kind of a hard um, conversation to have um, with some of my clients who were really interested in in that I was having a baby. Yeah, because it's like, I guess you can say that they're not trying to be difficult or 
mean or have an ulterior motive. It sounds like they're just very caring and they have an interest and they probably like you as well. And so having that conversation, that limit setting conversation can feel really awkward and uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think fundamentally, um, a lot of the kids that I worked with feel really alone and don't have a lot of supports or friends or anything like that. I, I really, really like working with kids like that. Um, and just being that, you know, that a stable person in their life that makes them feel affirmed and happy and comfortable with themselves. And it's so natural for them to, uh, either accidentally or on purpose, try and be more involved with me, even though I'm just, you know, I'm their therapist. I see them once every fortnight, stuff like that. I had um, some some other clients who got really angry about me um, being pregnant and um, not wanting. They're like, oh, like they kind of distanced themselves a little once they found out because they were a bit. I guess that was their way of kind of managing their emotions around someone they had formed an attachment to, then having to um, let go of them for however long. Mm, this is really rich, like psychodynamic stuff as well, like the transfer, yeah. <laughs> because everybody has different ways of coping and reacting. So I imagine some people who don't want to be uh, or have that feeling of abandonment would be the ones who would distance themselves from you. And maybe other people who wanted a closer connection to you were the ones who were like, yeah, I'll babysit your kids. Can you name your kid after me? Um, <laughs> I don't know, um, stuff like that. And so I'm just curious, like this is pretty advanced stuff that I am only recently learning, like maybe past six months and I'm two and a half years registered now. Like, mm. did you practice from a psychodynamic perspective or CBT was your jam? No, I, I guess the short answer is no, not, not in, um, in practice. I, you know, you kind of do the baseline CBT and yeah. you, you get that, you get that into your, um, your repertoire, I suppose. But as I, I work more with, um, clients and stuff, I find that because I, I like to work within the family system, you can really see attachment and all that sort of thing kind of going right into it. And I've just when maybe I'm still kind of new to this, but when I think about psychodynamic theory, I think about like Freud yeah. and I'm like, nah, he's, he's full of crap. Yeah. He's obviously outdated and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the more I go into it, the more, I, you know, you can see the merit in how our early attachments um, shape how we interact and, and especially with somebody who's in quotation marks, a caregiver, like your therapist. So yeah, I guess it was really apparent in that um, situation. So I, I, I guess my answer is that um, yes, but not intentionally. I just kind of flowed that way naturally because that's the line of work I'm in and trying to be more affirming than, you know, instructional, I guess. Yeah. And if you've got that attachment framework, yeah, that's how you would see it as well. It's like through our early experiences, we learn what a safe connection looks like. And if some people, I guess, don't have those safe connections and they've been let down by people in the past, maybe they would want to distance themselves from you who is going on maternity leave, like mm. is definitely going. And so they might want to distance themselves. So really interesting stuff, but I imagine quite difficult to cope with. Like, did you find that you were quite stressed out during that time? Like not only being pregnant, um, but managing clients in this different way. Was that more stressful for you? Um, I think it was more stressful. Um, because you, you, there's a few elements to it. Some okay. of it was, you know, the hormonal stuff and feeling quite tired all the time. I did end up having to reduce my days down so that I had like, I was doing five days a week and I had to go down to four 
and then maybe three towards the end of my pregnancy. Um, and I actually ended up wrapping up just a little bit earlier, so like a good month before it was due, just so I could have that space to kind of reflect and stuff like that. A lot of my clients um, also got to the pointy end of their um, difficulties that they're having. And so some um, engaged in a lot of higher risk activities towards the end of my pregnancy. And I think part of that was a bit of a uh, a reaching out and saying, no, mm. no, no, don't leave me. I yeah. need your help more than ever. Yeah. And, and that was pretty difficult to manage. I, I had um, a lot of supervision at that point and a lot of reflection and a lot of debriefing because there was a lot of really challenging clients that were just, um, and the thing is, is that I love these challenging clients. I love working with these complex clients with these wonderful interplay between, you know, neurodivergence, trauma, whatever, what have you, you know, PDA or whatever. Um, I love working with those clients, but I had to realize that um, my, like my bandwidth was not there to, to manage. And especially when I had, um, when I was going on to mat leave, I had to be able to hand them over to somebody and, and have them in a relatively stable place before I left, um, which was challenging because yeah, they, uh, some of them upped the ante as I mm -hmm. left and I mean, I think they ended up being okay in the end. Some of them have re-engaged um, after I got back. So that was nice. <laughs> I do have a random question just based off of what you said before that you like working with complex clients because yeah. I wanted to ask about it because my reaction when I think of complex clients is nausea. And I really, ah. I, I understand that people are complex. I get that. Like baseline is complexity, but then there's like a whole nother level of complexity. And mm. I'm just curious, have you always been drawn to the hardest shit that you can deal with? Or <laughs> is, is there some other motivating factor that is like, give me, give me hard stuff? Um, I think it's a mixture of just having a natural interest in people who present more complex, like uh, my master's research was on uh, neurodivergent women and they tend to have a lot of trauma and misdiagnosis and like all sorts of things kind of leveled on is there's also like um, so many things that might be in their you know personal life that have popped up because they're neurodivergent but I also just really it's just like so I'll give you an example so with a lot of um, uh, demand avoidant clients some of them don't want to go to therapy and mm -hmm. they just it's such a struggle to get them in the room. And once they get in the room, they are like, nah, I don't want to talk to you. And it, the, the, the complexity around that is trying to get them to engage and they just don't want to, and they don't want to be there. They're most like a lot of kids don't want to go to therapy, especially if they've been going for a long time, if they're neurodivergent and diagnosed early. But when you really get to them and you, you hear them and you make them feel heard and, and, I think giving them like autonomy in the room kind of makes them feel because I think all kids kind of just want to be heard and and seen and respected because they don't have a lot of respect in their lives. They let down their guard and they share stuff with you. And it's just so beautiful that that kind of it it feels it's like, yes, it's like the sweet spot. As soon as they 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 kind of feel safe enough to confide in me, I just feel, oh, yes, thank you. And I guess that's that's kind of part of the complexity that I work with. Um, I also work, I tend to work with a lot of um, higher risk clients for better or for worse. I, I got in my first year really, really good at risk assessment, which is um, which is kind of funny because at this point now it's just like, oh, yep, self-harm. Oh, yeah, suicide ideation. Let's go through the list. I'm ready to go. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, 
and it's just become rote at this point, which is funny because before I became a psych, it was like the most scary thing to me was like suicide risk and all that. And I just feel like I've, that was like a huge learning curve in my first year. And I really kind of, you know, got comfortable with it. I mean, I, I, it's always so emotionally draining those clients, but because it's, it's hard to hear, but, um, I don't know. I just, I, I'm drawn to the dark and twisty stuff that, and I just <laughs> want to help people who like, you know, I'm thinking of like Meredith Grey on Grey's Anatomy, dark yeah. and twisty. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it sounds very satisfying to see the results of your work, like to have a PDA child open up to you. It's a real privilege. And like you said, it can be really beautiful to create that space where they do feel safe and heard. So I can get yeah. that. I can empathize with that and not feel as nauseated. I can also see the appeal of knowing a process with suicidal clients and then being able to apply that and having confidence in your skills and techniques. That sounds really satisfying as well. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely doing a lot of research in that area was really helpful. Mm. Like having, um, I was scared of the idea of it when I first became a psychologist. So I overstudied it. So I was prepared. And every time I, I even now, even um, at this point, I, I still debrief with my supervisor if somebody's disclosed risk, just so I make sure that I have all my, um, you know, T's crossed and I's dotted. I think that's a really good idea. Yeah, I think I, I don't know if that's standard practice, but that's what I do, because I just I just don't want to miss anything like it's important, I think, because, yeah, the, the uh, thankfully I've had nobody in a serious position. But, yeah, it's been <sighs> Some some clients, they they really weigh on you. And that's um, when it's really important to kind of know your boundaries around taking on complexity. Sometimes I have to stop myself from taking on a client I know I'm going to be is going to be really complex. I'm like, oh, that person sounds like they'd be really interesting to work with. But no, 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 I don't have the bandwidth. I can't uh, take on another complex client. Yeah. So you I guess you looking towards yourself and you're like have an inner gauge of my emotional bandwidth and then you look at the client and you're like yeah no love to but can't yeah I think and that's been a real challenge because um you know coming back from mat leave and as well I now have like my own child I'm I'm taking care of I suppose and being a caregiver as well as uh, in the caregiving almost profession yeah you you only have so much and if especially when you're sleep deprived and all the other things you have to be able to like, you can't take, you can't save everybody. You have to find if, if you can't take like as much as I love working with complex clients and, and, and helping them and, and the reward around it, I do them a disservice if I take them on when I can't manage their emotional needs. Mm. So I, it's really important to know that and be aware of that. I think that was one of the the big things I am taking away now that I like, so first my thing was like rapport building and now it's about setting boundaries for myself and, and knowing my limits, I guess. How does that work with your workplace? Like, it sounds like you've arrived at this really healthy place for yourself where you recognize, okay, this is what I can do. This is what I can't do. And it sounds like you're comfortable communicating that to clients, but how does that interact with the workplace? Because with the workplace, sometimes you'll be like, look, I can't take on this client. And they're like, you need to take on this client. I think I'm very lucky. I have a very supportive workplace that um, are aware of like the well-being of the practitioners that work there. We we work in a challenging space, and um, our clients tend to be complex, and they are just so aware of burnout. They don't want it's a private practice, and 
I think at this point, psychologists and, you know, OTs and speeches and all that are all in really high demand. So if, if somebody burns out, that's another person that's off. And then you have to find somebody who can support that person. And there's a whole rapport building aspect again. And so I think they just, like our practice just kind of understands the importance of um, practitioner well-being. That's amazing. And it's a thing that I'm hearing. I've done a few of these interviews now with listeners and it's a really common theme. It's like if your workplace is unsupportive, it can break you. If they're supportive, they can make you. And I guess, listener, just sidestep here. But yeah, if you're in an unsupportive workplace who doesn't care about whether you burn out or not, try find something else. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) Don't stick around. Yeah, because I'm so glad that employers are recognizing this because you're right. It's like if you burn out, you are taking a few months off. It's in their best interest to make sure that you don't burn out. Um, Otherwise, they're down an employee and it's really hard to find psychologists to replace you in this work climate. Definitely. I I 100% feel that. And especially since COVID, everything's a bit more pointy than it used to be. I mean, not that I know what it was before, but I've heard from other people that it's there's a lot more trauma. There's a lot more suicide ideation. There's a lot more um, self-harm, uh, especially in the with kids and teens and stuff. I feel like they're, they're more heightened than they used to be. We, we do assessments at our workplace and like assessment, the demand is just shot through the roof. Like, That's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's so funny hearing you say that. And I'm so glad that you acknowledged it, that as early career psychs, like I did my provisional during COVID. Did you do your provisional during COVID? Yeah, as well? I did. Yeah, yeah that was like, interesting. Yeah, it was so interesting. It's like overnight, okay, learn like telehealth and now your clients are telehealth and work out how to do that with kids. Good luck. Bye. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like, but I'm so glad you're acknowledged and that other people seem to have acknowledged as well that it does seem to be pointier now, like with COVID and we are developing in this pointy environment, which is difficult. And I just love it how sometimes you hear other psychologists be like early career psychs are such snowflakes they're not resilient and I'm like Mm. dude we are doing such complex stuff yes Mm. I hear you I I, and I think that's so true like um we were kind of thrown in the deep end like on top of learning that I mean it's kind of nice that we kind of grew with um telehealth but yeah try getting a kid um, with executive functioning difficulties to sit on Zoom yeah. and teach them something is absolutely ridiculous yeah. and not helpful. <laughs> I remember having like spinning chair breaks a lot. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh that's awesome. Oh, I'm going to do that yeah. next time. It's, it's, it, I guess it depends on the client, but it's like, so they would have the, there was a lot of clients who had the urge to spin in their chairs and I'm like, okay, mm. if we do this, we can spin in our chair. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's so good. Um, but yeah, honestly, he... yeah. Oh, so hard to do that. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's it's even like better to work with the parents at that point because you can coach them. Absolutely. Jordan, I just wanted to take a step back. We kind of, I, we touched on a little bit of the rapport building, but I just wondered whether there was anything else you wanted to add to that because I understand you focused a lot on this in your first year post-reg. Um, can you tell us a bit more about how you focused on rapport building? I think the main thing was that a natural tendency for early career psychologists is to kind of figure out their modality. Like, am I CBT or am I going to do schema or am I going to you know, do um, psychodynamic or whatever? That really, I think, just if you focus on rapport, that's going to be more helpful than anything. Like the research shows that best uh, predictor of outcomes is good rapport with your therapist. And that's something that I 
I really fell back on when I felt, oh, you know, I really don't know this space yet. Because of course, you're not going to know everything going straight out and you're not going to have all those tools in your toolbox that you can just whip out when, oh, someone says, you know, I have sleep sleep issues. Oh, here's my my formula for how you manage sleep issues. As long as you have a good relationship with them and you're kind of transparent, I always, like, I think probably if I was going to pick a modality, probably like Rogerian things, like, you know, what was what it? Uh, unconditional positive regard, openness, and what's the, like transparency or something like that? I don't something know. like that. Ah, I don't know off the top of my head, but that was the one I kept falling back on. I was like, okay, as long as um, our relationship is okay, I can tell them, look, uh, I need to get back to you on that because I don't know off the top of my head. And just being very genuine with them, um, giving them respect as well. Like, don't talk down to them. I don't think anyone likes being talked down to. And you want them to feel comfortable opening up to you because that's that's our our job, you know? You can give them like instructions, but if they don't like you, they're probably not going to see them. They're going to be like, screw that person. I'm going to, you know, whatever. Yeah, that was my main thing was that if if I focused on the rapport building, and I ended up being really good at it in the end. I think um, that's probably one of my strengths as a therapist is establishing rapport with my clients. Yeah, I feel like that's also one of my strengths. So I very yeah. rarely have people who don't come back for a second session. Um, and mm. I usually have clients who stick around for a long time as well. And focusing on that as well in my first year, first few years actually, really helps with doing other things. So you can challenge people if you have a good relationship. You can mm-hmm. say how it is for them. Like I say you're trying really hard, but I think you're getting in your own way, mate. Um, something like that. Um, but the relationship allows a lot of flexibility and allows you to help your clients more. That's what I find. Is that what you find? Oh, totally. Yeah. i I'm sitting here nodding along. Um, I don't think the listeners can see that. <laughs> I'm just like, yes, yes. Um but yeah, totally. It's so hard to challenge people if they don't have that buy-in already. Yeah. Like they'll they'll kind of get up on what they call on your haunches where yeah. you're kind of like, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to. So like some of my clients are, you know, they're skeptical of therapy or, or their parents have forced them to come. Then I'll be like, you know, let's just focus on building a relationship and like, let's play a few games. Let's chill out and, and just talk mm. over a game of chess. I love, I love bringing in chess. Yeah, cool. Um, and just like building that rapport. So then later on down the track, when they start saying things like, you know, we'll do like some thought challenging or I, I question, you know, something that I don't know if they had a cognitive distortion, like going into that CBT stuff, that's easier to challenge once they, they, respect your opinion and value that relationship. Yeah. And I think being authentic, um, I actually read a study about this, particularly with neurodivergent people that they, like most people have a solid bullshit detector. They know when somebody's being fake or patronizing, but mm. apparently neurodivergent folk have it even more. They really hate inauthenticity. So it sounds like you working with the people you work with, it's even more important to not have that just blank slate, just I'm professional. I'm so distant from you um, to be more engaging. What do you think? I think that's so true. Like, um, I'm just going to like go out there and say that I am neurodivergent myself. Oh, cool. um, so I think that it's so much effort trying to figure out if there's a subtext to something. Yeah. So if you're just say it, just say, you know, um, if I see that a client makes a face like, I don't really agree with that. I was like, I can see on your face that there's something happening here. Why don't you tell me about that? You know, like, just 
like call it out when you see it. I've I've told I've been so like transparent with these clients that are um about everything. Like if the, if they want me to I've had clients ask me what's in drawers and stuff and and all this sort of thing and I want to explore the room and see the um practice and all that and I'll go, "Yeah, sure, let's do that. If that makes you feel comfortable, make you feel more safe in the room, let's do that." So, I mean, that's kind of a little bit off topic, but yeah. Like- I don't think it's off topic at all. Like I've done that myself, like particularly for neurodivergent or clients with a trauma background, I'll give them a tour yeah. of the building so that they can feel more safe. And I'll be like, that person's nice. Here's the drink fountain. There's the toilets. You can get out here. Um, I think it's part of building safety and building rapport. I feel like safety is a crucial part of the work that we do. Yeah, totally. I think it's so, so critical for the person to feel safe in the room. And and all of that is in the rapport building. You don't want to be like, yeah, like we're professionals, but we're professionals in social interaction. And so it's a, yeah, I think that's so critical. Mm. So Jordan, what's something that listeners can take away from our discussion about rapport building? I think the, the takeaway for this is that you should just try and focus on the one thing in the beginning. Don't try and know everything. So for me, it was rapport building. And I think that's probably like, I, I don't want to be too general, but I think that's actually like probably the main thing most people should be focusing on in the beginning, just because that's the best predictor of outcomes. It's evidence-based. Yeah. I hear that. It's like, I used to, when I was first starting out as well, the way I thought about it was if I have a textbook of CBT in my head, the client isn't going to care about that if they don't like and trust me. So I could have the best techniques in the world, but if we don't have that buy-in, if they don't feel that I genuinely care about their well-being and their outcome, then they're not going to care. Totally. I think that's so, so true. Um, And they don't know that either, you know? Jordan, I just want to do a sidestep and see if we can go into another direction. Is there another area that you've learned about in your early career that you want to share with listeners? Yeah. So I guess off the back of rapport building, it's also um, kind of managing your boundaries as well, because part of um, rapport building can be a bit of self-disclosure and knowing, I think I talked about this a bit with the mat leave stuff, but knowing um you know, what's okay to share and what you should keep to yourself and things like that. So uh, it's a fine line. So you can share general things like, you know, I belong to this. I think a lot of uh, neurodivergent clinicians are now disclosing that, or I belong to this kind of subculture or something like that to make a client feel more like it's safe to open up. But you also don't want to go in and start um, disclosing things like the thing I've dealt with personally in my life, you know? Uh, and I know that uh, setting boundaries there is can be challenging with my clients because they, yeah, they want to know more and they might ask you some intrusive things. I've had, um, you know, I've had a few clients ask me about my personal experiences experience, uh, with neurodivergence and um, being a part of the queer community and stuff like that. And that's just something that's hard to navigate, I think. Yeah. So you kind of toe the line carefully. And I'm so aware of that as, as setting boundaries. Um, but like, you know, on top of that is boundaries, isn't just in session. It's also, you know, like I said before with, um, boundaries for yourself, how much you take on and as well as boundaries in like the workplace. So when you're, when you're talking with your boss, yeah, I can't take on this client. I don't have the bandwidth for it. I think a lot of clinicians just want to help. And sometimes they'll, 
help to their detriment, take on more than they can because uh, I'll just squeeze that extra person in. I, I can make it work. They really, really need their, uh, like my help. I just need to, to help them. They kind of rush in, or I really want to help my boss with this. Um, and it, it is, I think it's, it's probably an uphill battle for a lot of us to say, look, I can't do that. Or even saying no. And that's so challenging. So I think upskilling and learning to say no and setting that boundary is so critical, especially if you wanted to go out and and do something like what you're doing, Brian, which is solo private practice, where where you have to be the one to say no. You can't defer to your boss or or um, somebody else. And that's something that's that's really um, important, I think. Because yeah, there's we have these tough conversations too, and we have to say like if a client says to us, "Please don't tell my parents," you have to say, "No, sorry, man, I gotta tell your parents. This is not safe." Like I, I my prime goal is to keep you safe. That's a setting a boundary, and you're modeling that to some clients who maybe don't have that great of boundary to begin with. Yeah, I think that's a trap that we can fall into. So when we build rapport. We do want to get along with the client, but I feel like we also need to be comfortable with them potentially not liking us. They're not going to agree with everything that we do or like us all the time, and we can still have a good relationship, but that can be really difficult if you're a people pleaser or self-sacrificer. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, And you always kind of feel like, whenever you have to say something really challenging. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like I know that setting boundaries with like, in our practice, we have a policy that if we have to mandatory report, we tell the um, parent, I know that you mean the best for your kid, but I'm going to have to report what's happening here. And that can be so, that's such a hard conversation to have. It's like the hardest thing ever. Yeah. I think that would be up there in like, yeah, hardest conversations to psychologists, definitely. Oh yeah. Um, or even saying, look, I don't think you're safe to go home right now. Yeah, We're going to have to go. I'm going to call somebody or we're going to make sure that you get to the hospital. Mm. That's a really hard one to have to. Yeah. And making that call as an early career psychologist as well, it can be like, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the wrong thing? And I guess it speaks to the importance of seeking advice from your colleagues as well and debriefing and really checking in what your next steps are, right? Oh yeah, totally. I think that, um, I think, I mean, talking about resilience, one of the big factors in resilience is um, social connection. I think that I mean, our work is so flipping hard. Like it's a hard job and it's even harder right now after COVID and all that. So it you need to debrief. You can't be an island in this in this job. Sometimes you need to say, oh my God, that was like so scary. I was flipping out, but like you're so like I'm calm. Yeah. I'm zen, you yeah. know, in session. But yeah. like inside you're like, oh my God. Yeah. Afterwards, that's when you need to talk to somebody and just like unpack it. Yeah. I'm just curious, Jordan, when you have difficult conversations with clients or you need to set boundaries or they ask you personal questions and you don't want to answer, do you have canned responses? Like, do you practice things to say outside of sessions or do you just make it up on the spot? I usually have like dot points before a session where I, um, I cover the, like, if it's a planned one where I'm going to say, like, if I have to do a mandatory report, um, I'll say, you know, I'll, I want to cover this and this and this. Um, if it's something like a risk assessment, and I t- I tend to like go through the form and actually um, fall back on procedure. I'll say, look, this is this is our policy here. We need to do this, 
and I'll I'll be really transparent with them. And if it's a if it's a hard conversation, I I kind of fall back on autonomy as well. I was like, I need to tell your parents about this. Would you like to be in the room or would you like to be out of the room? How would you like me to tell them? Would you be like to be the one to tell them? Make sure that they have a lot of choice in that and feeling like they're safe and and being like um, there's more agency in it because. These hard conversations are often about taking away agency and making people feel less in control and, yes. and more vulnerable. So if you can give them a little bit of power in that, I think that's really helpful. And it, I, I think, I mean, it's a, not a fun conversation. I have had clients say, oh, I hate you. I, I, I never want to see you again. But then there's like that rupture and repair that you kind of do after those tough conversations. And if the rapport is there, they'll come back. They'll it's it's that's part of it right like that yeah. navigating of the repair of the relationship we're a, a microcosm of their their world where we're talking to them yeah and some clients might have never had a repair model to them they've always yeah. had say a fight or a disagreement and that's been the end of the relationship or you don't talk and then you never resolve it so it can be incredibly powerful for clients to be able to have a repair modeled and be like hey like we disagreed but we still cool Mm, absolutely. I think that's so critical. And yeah, you're so right. And it happens a lot with my clients, where, like something will happen and they're like, that person's dead to me. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's practice uh, you getting pissed off at me in session and then we can repair, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Jordan, I'm interested where the road is leading for you now. So are you going to stay in private practice? Uh, what's what's next for you on the radar? Oh, I super love working in private practice. So yeah. I think I'm, I'm going to continue down that route. I've talked to my boss about um, having a bit of a mentor relationship as far as branching out into my own private practice at some point. I, I would so love to be in solo private practice down the track. I'm still um, finding my feet and navigating. I, I just had my baby a year ago, so I'm still kind of checking in about my bandwidth, although I'm super motivated and to my detriment sometimes. Yeah, so I think probably solo private practice in the future, but I love, um, I'll kind of see what opportunities come up, maybe a bit of teaching. I love that as well. Cool, amazing. Yeah, it's really interesting to see how you're managing post new mom plus yeah. working in this field. And it sounds like it's a constant juggle and yeah. Oh yeah. It's such a big thing. It's a massive task, like being a caregiver at home, caregiver at work and knowing um, where to kind of say, okay, I need to focus on this. Yeah. I'm just curious, how come you would like to branch out into a solo practice? It sounds like your group practice is very supportive. I'm just curious. And I bet listeners are curious as well, why you would want to branch out. Um, I think I like the idea of being my own boss. Yeah. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll convert into, you know, a group practice down the track, but, um, I don't think I have the, I feel like that's the, the word of the day bandwidth to, yeah. um, to like be a manager. I think I, I love having autonomy and knowing that I'm only accountable to myself and my clients, I guess. So I think that's probably why I would like to go into a solo private practice. Cool. Um, although of course I'm so, um, grateful to the people I work with. And at the moment I'm doing quite a long commute to get there and um, I'm really struggling with that, but I just love the culture there so much that I'm just like, ah, it's hard. Yeah. yeah. No, really interesting to hear. And I agree with that. Um, it is 
if you love autonomy, then solo private practice is a really great way to do that. And just from, obviously I'm in my own solo private practice and it's like, if I don't mm. like my work hours, then that's me, that's on me. And I got to change that. Um, mm. So it really is like being accountable to yourself, but also really knowing yourself and how you want to spend your energy, how you want to set up your policies, um, how you want to engage with your clients and how you want to present yourself. It's, it's challenging, but very interesting. Mm, totally. I think, yeah, it, I, I really admire that you're doing it. And I was like, oh, that's, this is perfect for me to listen to this podcast. So <laughs> listen to other stuff, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jordan, is there anything else that you want to leave listeners with? No, I think, I think we've covered most of it, but I, yeah, I'm just really grateful to have a chance to talk on this podcast. And I, I'm hopeful that my story is helpful to other early career clinicians. It's good just to say that you are surviving and even thriving, dare I say, in the profession and that you still enjoy seeing clients and you're managing your life as well. That's pretty cool. And I think admirable to hear. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jordan, for coming on. It was a delight to have you. And I'm so glad that listeners can benefit from your experience. And listeners, thank you so much for listening. Have a good one and catch you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career psychologists. Podcasts are pretty tough and it's really hard to get the word out there. So there are a couple of things you could do to really help us out. One, leave a review. Second, consider sharing the podcast with your peers. We would love you for it. Thanks for listening and see you next time.